This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. From the Fox News Radio studios in New York City, giving you opinions and facts with a positive approach. It's Brian Kilmeade. Thanks so much for being here, everybody. It's the Brian Kilmeade Show, and thanks for being with us all week long. Of course, in the Northeast, you're dealing with, on top of everything else you're dealing with with this pandemic, you're dealing with some weather issues. Washington was dealing with it a little bit earlier now. Uh, Boston, Massachusetts, uh, New York, New Jersey. But we can handle it. Nothing uh, too big for us. Dr. Dr. Uh, Jeanette Neshwat will be joining us in 10 minutes. And then we're going to have Jonathan Turley. Among the things we'll talk to Jonathan Turley about is that big mandate case the Supreme Court is taking up in an emergency fashion today, hearing arguments on both sides. Do you have a right to, to mandate a vaccine to private businesses? We'll get into the nuances of that argument as well, as well as January 6th. January 6th, was it a riot? Was it an insurrection? Should these people be jailed for life because they walked into the Capitol? Whether they were what they were guilty of, we're not sure because a lot of them have not been charged. Jonathan Turley on that. So let's get to the big three. Now with the stories you need to know, it's Brian's Big Three. Number three. Would these policies give criminals a green light? No. I mean, it, it, it just depends upon your definition of criminal. Uh, and for all too long, we're kind of dealt with this othering of, you know, anyone we put in jail is a a criminal. Crime crisis. Murderers hit records and new DAs are wrecking any chance of bringing law and order back to our streets. Is there hope for change without a recall or an election? Number two. Certain dates echo throughout history. December 7th, 1941. September 11th, 2001. And January 6th, 2021. Are you kidding what? Predictable. Marking a horrible day in our history. January 6th morphed into an anti-Republican, anti-Trump festival of verbal barbs and hyperbolic speeches. And remarks like that. The vice president takes the cake, equaling the day to 9-11 and Pearl Harbor. Number one. But is it time for a new approach is the question. I mean, th- this administration came in promising to get things on track. Here we are a year later. We're in the fourth wave. There aren't enough tests, nearly enough I think it's important for us to, 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 to see in this moment we're still, it is extremely frustrating. There's no question for all of us. Oh, new approach. That's what Joe Biden's medical experts, many aligned with Democrats as well, are calling for when it comes to fighting this pandemic. As we currently are battling it out with school closures, vax mandates, and flabbergasted with the inexplicable, unacceptable, unacceptable fact that we don't have enough tests and he just signed the uh, the invoice that gives, we already gave him the money, 500 million tests are going to be mailed out to people through our post office. Fine. The same post office who are mandating get vaccinated, many of which are going, forget it, I'm outdoors anyway, I'm not doing it. So they're fired. So good luck with that. Fire everybody, then ask them to deliver things. Not going to work. Do the same thing with uh, our uh, our military. Fantastic. More people out of the Navy, more people out of the Marines. Uh, finally, the Navy SEALs are fighting back legally, and they got to stay. So when it comes to this coronavirus, I was stunned by this. 
Six prominent health experts who advise President Biden's transition team has called for an entirely new domestic coronavirus strategy. Listen, it's not me. It's not you. It's not that doctor you like listening to. These are Joe Biden's experts that guided his terrible policy that he was going to kill the virus, not the economy. He killed the economy. The virus is anything but killed, even though he declared it dead in July. We know people make mistakes, but he never admits it. People make mistakes, but he never admits they didn't order tests that were sitting on his desk. Fill out an invoice. Do you have anybody on staff there? He's got his own pandemic unit. So so in a shift, he's preparing Americans now to do something and play back the tape. I've been talking about from day one. we got to learn to live with this. I didn't even want to do the two weeks to slow the spread. It made no sense to me. Of course, I've never lived in the, a pandemic. None of us did. No one was around in 1918. So... You can read about it, but I thought, you know, with all our advances, we're really going to hide? We're going to leave our gyms, leave our restaurants, leave our workplace, leave the schools? Yeah, we all did, and it did nothing. We kept people indoors. We actually would find people for walking outdoors on the beach and then sitting too close to each other on their, on their, on their blankets. So now in a shift, the COVID-19 uh, cases climb with the Omicron uh, variant, Americans uh, are going to have to learn to accept the virus, these people say, in a break from a year ago when he took office with a pledge to reign in the pandemic. And months later, the nation was closer than ever to declaring our independence in a deadly virus. Remember? Well, Dr. Ezekiel Emanuel, Osterholm, Cecilia Grounder, David Michaels, Rick Bright, Luciano Barborio offered various suggestions. I'll just run through some of them because I do have Dr. Neshwat, who has her own uh, interesting column that came out on this. COVID vaccinations uh, nor infections appear to confer lifelong immunity. How about not even a year? By the way, that's my commentary. Current vaccines do not offer sterilizing immunity against this virus. Infectious diseases cannot be eradicated when there is a limited long-term immunity, which we're experiencing right now. Those are my words. So what are you going to do? They're going to do this. Advisors say that their vast new investments are needed, such as real-time opt-out digital surveillance system. Uh, Don't count me in on that. Two years into the pandemic, the U.S. is still looking for reliant data. We have to depend on the U.S., excuse me, the U.K. and Israel. Why are we still doing that? Why are we not getting our own data? I have, Anthony Fauci, get the hell off television and start compiling data and put together a team that would work for him. In 81 years, he has a few contacts. Why are we always citing Israel? In another article, the advisors call on the federal government to help phase in a new vaccine that targets specific variants, a step the vaccine makers have explored. So we got Omicron. Instead of saying get everybody a generic booster, you get everyone a designer for Omicron. I don't know if that's even possible. I don't really want to be a pincushion for everybody's vaccine booster. Up, oh, we got Omicron. I got to go down the block to NYU. Uh, and get my booster. Oh, I, we have a different one. Oh, it's Delta. I got to get my Delta. And then what comes after? Oh, who knows? We got to get that one. Um, are you going to do that? And do you really think your body's not going to react in a way that maybe will compensate on its own or the virus won't do in a way to try to get around what they think is something blocking uh, them from living? So we know one thing for sure. Uh, this virus has a, a mind of its own. Right. So we're dealing with school closures. We're dealing with mandates where people getting fired. Here's Dr. Jay Bhattacharya. And he's talking about this pandemic and living with it. He did it with Laura last night. Cut nine. We've tried for two years 
fruitlessly to, to, to basically contain and stop the virus, maybe even try to get it to zero. It was clear from very early on that that was going to be a failed policy. And frankly, I'm glad to see them join our side uh, to, to some extent, because uh, we realistically, we, we don't have a choice. Uh, this pandemic ends. It's a political decision when this pandemic ends. And uh, I think finally, people are starting to realize you can't stop the virus from spreading. You can protect vulnerable people. You can use vaccines and early treatment and other, other mechanisms to protect people should they get COVID. But you cannot get rid of the virus. Okay. He goes on to say that there's no evidence to support these continuing boosters. I was thinking about getting it. I'm not getting it now. No way. Done. I'm done. Cut eight. There's no clinical evidence to support the continuing boosters over and over again. Um, there was barely enough clinical evidence, I believe, for a third shot for, for uh, and I think for cer- certain groups of people, but certainly not universal boostering and certainly not for fourth, fifth boosters. I think the problem is they are still thinking about using the vaccine to get rid of the disease. Well, we've seen the vaccine does not stop the disease from spreading. The vaccine can protect against severe disease, and that's a really good thing, but it is not useful for getting the virus down to zero. All right. Uh, we're all coming together on this now, living with it. They don't ever acknowledge it, but they are. Real quick, on January 6th, uh, a year ago, a rally turned into a riot uh, in our Capitol building. Some people just walking through, got caught up in it. Those idiots that walked around with Confederate flags and Trump flags and replaced them, the American flag, with the Trump flag. Uh, I don't really think you should spend the rest of your life in jail, but you made a stupid mistake. Dumb move, all right? But it is not September 11th, and it is not the Japanese bombing Pearl Harbor. Here's Kamala Harris. Cut 10. Certain dates echo throughout history. Dates that occupy not only a place on our calendars, but a place in our collective memory. December 7th, 1941. September 11th, 2001. And January 6th, 2021. And then, uh, I mean, I just sat there, is this real? Is someone trying to destroy your career? I mean, she just sat there, read this stiff, and then in came the president with his look like a political speech, and you'll hear some of that. He came in and basically took on Donald Trump and tried to diminish Donald Trump. They're trying to make Donald Trump unelectable. They cannot believe a year Donald Trump is still viable and in some polls still beating Joe Biden head-to-head, or beating for the first time head-to-head, because he got more votes than anybody else in Republican history. No other Republican got as many votes as him. They don't want to bring that up. But here is Jim Jordan on the ridiculous comparison on January 6th, cut 19. The vice president of the United States says this is January 6th was the equivalent to Pearl Harbor, was the equivalent to, to 9-11. Tell that to the granddaughter whose grandfather was, gave his life on D-Day. Tell that to the son whose, whose dad was one of the firefighters who went into the tower on 9-11. Or frankly, tell that to Max Soviak's family. Max Soviak, one of the 13 people from our district, one of the 13 people who gave his life for our country this summer. Go tell that to them. That, that, this is from the same lady who was raising money to bail people out of jail who attacked law enforcement in the summer of 2020. Go tell that to those individuals. That's how ridiculous and out of touch the Democrats, Last the Democrats word, Jim. are. Um, obviously, I want your opinion. one 866 Dr. Uh, Dr. Jeanette Neshwa, uh, who deals with these uh, COVID patients every day, unlike Anthony Fauci and most of the people you hear from on television, she's going to be joining us now on where she thinks we are and where we should go from here. This is The Brian Kilmeade Show. It's Brian Kilmeade. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. 
Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com system. A talk show that's real. This is The Brian Kilmeade Show. Six former members of Biden's Health Advisory Board have urged the administration in a series of op-eds to scrap their pandemic strategy and embrace this new normal of living with endemic COVID. The doctors calling out the administration's previous claims about making progress on the pandemic premature and also urging humility. Yeah, what about humility? Uh, you don't know what you're doing. Nobody does, for sure. We're trying to figure out on the fly, but all we hear about is the uh, the the horrible people called the unvaccinated. Well, somebody who doesn't have the time to get involved with the rhetoric or the politics because she's treating patients with this on a daily basis and more, Dr. Jeanette Neshawat, Fox News contributor, family and emergency medical doctor. Uh, Dr. Neshawat, it's always great to talk to you, but in a time in which Good there's morning. so much cloudy uh, information, you came out with four things we should be doing right now, correct? Yes, that's correct. I think the most important thing that we should putting our energy and focus in right now is making sure our kids are in the classroom, making sure that we don't have school shutdowns, school closures. That's number one. And then the second most important thing is why aren't we using the DPA to ramp up testing and therapeutics, the antivirals, the monoclonal antibodies that we need that are life-saving, like sotrobimab. We know that works against uh, Omicron. Why aren't we working hard to increase the supply of those medications? And then, of course, um, you know, I think it's important to understand that testing is not the only, you know, tool that we have. In my opinion, having excellent ventilation and good air filtration systems, for example, in schools, might be even more beneficial than them wearing a mask or, you know, uh, uh, be even being vaccinated. Of course, the combination of all three is best, but we know that you can still pick up COVID uh, even if you're vaccinated, but your symptoms will be much, much less severe. So I think that's important. And then also, I think it's important to continue to test and trial other medications like fluvoxamine, like colchicine. You know, some doctors have used ivermectin. There's what's called the, the TOGETHER trial, where we use pre-existing medications that we've used for many, many years, and we test to see if some of the properties of those medications can be useful in treating uh, COVID, not just the pills from uh, from Merck and Pfizer. All right, a couple of things. Uh, we don't. Why do you think the government has collected and denied states the monoclonal antibodies? Well, at first, they believed that Eli, Lilly, and Regeneron was not working against Omicron um, because, you know, Omicron, uh, only the, the sotropamab is the one, the one by Glasgow, Smith, Kine. So they yanked it for that reason. But, you know, they should still increase the production of the other. And it's, even if you might get 20 percent, 30 percent. Uh, relief of symptoms with the ones that supposedly don't work, you know, it's worth giving it a try, especially if someone is really, really ill. Um, but in my opinion, there's no reason to withhold if it exists and if it's just sitting there on a shelf. Let us doctors use what we have. Let us try to keep our patients healthy and alive. 
So there's really no reason for withholding or, you know, not uh, dispensing or increasing the supply of the other ones. Yeah, so a couple of things. Now with 500 million tests are going to start going to people's houses by the end of January. Are those mm-hmm. te- Now we're going to trust people to do their tests themselves the right way, maybe register online first. What do you think everyone testing is going to do? Well, it's, it's nice to have it. First of all, half a million, that's nothing. We'll be done with that in a week. What, what I'm seeing is people will take these home tests. If they test positive, then they need confirmation. Their, their, their job or their employer needs a note or a letter. So they'll still come in to see a doctor or to go to a testing site just to confirm or just to get, you know, documentation that they have it so that they can quarantine and be paid for it. Um, it it's nice to know if you have it, obviously, so you could stay home and get well and get better. But um, you're right. If you're not if you're not doing it properly, if you're not collecting enough mucus in your nostrils, um, you could get a false negative. And then we have the people that are doing it and do test positive, but it's not reported. So we really don't know exactly how many cases we have daily, but um, it's nice to have, but it's nowhere near enough, nowhere near enough. That's enough to maybe get us through a couple of days. We have, what, 330 million Americans in this country? Well, and if they need, yeah. Yeah, although they said 500 million, but so everyone's got to get one to their house in theory. So if they do, so what? So you get it and you test, and then what? Right now they say if you test positive with Omicron, it's five days, and you don't need a test to release. Uh, right. And if you do, if you get a rapid, they want you to take a rapid test. Because there's remnants mm-hmm. of the PCR tests that will be in your system will always have you testing positive. But they say the rapid test, you need more than one rapid test, almost the best of three, the way we decide the first round of hockey playoffs, correct? Yeah, so the thing is, if you're early in your disease, if you have COVID and it's real, real early, yeah, it takes time for the viral load to build up. But I, I would say most of my patients, Brian, if they have symptoms and they have runny nose and fever and you know all the symptoms of COVID, the tests are pretty good. You know, they're around 80 to 90%. But if you, have no, if you were just exposed and you have no symptoms, yeah, it may not pick up for a few days, for a week. But overall, I think they are useful. And I like the fact that the quarantine was reduced to five days. And I like the fact that you don't have to, you're not required to get testing again after five days. But just use common sense. If you're still sick, Stay home, heal, get, you know, get well, take some zinc and vitamin C and drink some hot tea. No need for you to go out into the workforce if you're sick, you know, let your body heal. But I I like the fact that it's not required that you have to have a repeat test after five days. Is it nice to know and good to know so you don't spread to others? Yes, but that's why they say wear your mask after five days, even if you have no symptoms, just for five more days, uh, just for safety. But cloth masks don't work. Uh, yes, apparently the cloth masks don't work. The, the better masks are the, the the KN95s, which are just a, which are a little bit thicker. Um, some people like to double up on the surgical masks. I see that that can be helpful. And then of course the N95, but it's, right. it's not practical. It isn't. And you're outdoors. You're never going to get it outdoors. Yeah, you should not be exactly. walking to the beach alone with a mask on. Uh, right. Dr. Neshwat, uh, so uh, four important points. It's online on FoxNews.com. Thank you, uh, Doctor. Always great to talk to you. Have a great weekend. Thanks, Brian. Have a good one. All right. Jonathan Turley, on the chances of these mandates being being ruled unconstitutional, next. Out of the gates and ready to go. Hey, it's Hutton Withrow. Hot Mike is here on the Outkick Network. We've got your afternoon covered with the latest sports discussion, and it's available wherever you find your audio. Daily analysis and news. He is hot. I am Mike. Actually, my <laughs> name is Chad. 
His name is Jonathan, but you get the picture. We're going to bring it every single day. Whatever you want to call us, we'll respond to. We just want you to respond to what we're dishing out every day. And while you're here, we hope you'll subscribe to the podcast, like, subscribe, and share. A radio show like no other. It's Brian Kilmeade. We know that more than 60% of businesses on their own accord have implemented vaccine requirements or testing requirements. They've all implemented it in different ways. Our objective here is to not punish, but to protect people, to save more lives, to make people feel more safe and comfortable in the workplace. And as a part of the process, uh, there is a process of um, of consulting with individuals who are not yet vaccinated, uh, and there's not a cliff. That is not the intention here, and that is the same in terms of how it would be applied. But that's it's going to be applied oppressively. People will be fired uh, if you don't get your own way. And that's just not the way to run a country. I know we're in the middle of a pandemic. I'm never comfortable with that. And what makes it worse is that Joe Biden wasn't comfortable with that. Anthony Fauci wasn't comfortable for that. But it didn't stop him from implementing it because they say we're, I guess, we're too thick-skulled to just all get vaccinated, even though 71% of the population over 12 is fully vaccinated, which is amazing. Jonathan Turley, law professor at George Washington University, joins us now and knows this thing is being argued in an emergency session of the Supreme Court today. Jonathan, welcome back. Thank you very much. Jonathan, how do you think this will go? These are two separate cases, right? They are. They both raise, obviously, a very similar question, which is, whether the Biden administration has the authority to implement a national mandate of this kind. The interesting aspect is that the lead witness for those challenging the mandate uh, happens to be Chief of Staff Ron Klain. Uh, he retweeted uh, a, a statement that this was a, the workaround that they've been looking for uh, to get around the constitutional limitations. It was a remarkably moronic thing for him to post. He has a history of that. Um, And it was cited by the lower courts. They said, you know, we don't do workarounds. You know, either you have the authority or you don't. And so this is going to raise very significant questions of the limits of executive power. But there's also an underlying issue here, which deals with a thing called the Chevron Doctrine. And that is this doctrine created by the Supreme Court that gives a huge amount of deference to federal agencies. Various members of the court, particularly Gorsuch, uh, have been critics of the Chevron doctrine. I'm also a critic of the doctrine. And these cases raise that issue. This could be a very costly fight for the Biden administration. They could not only lose the national mandates they've created, but because they overreached, they could weaken the Chevron doctrine. Wow. Uh, Jonathan, people look locally and they see what these uh, mayors have done and just said, okay, if uh, you guys in the medical profession, if you don't get vaccinated, you're fired. And they fired them. You guys in the police department, if you don't get vaccinated, you're, uh, you're, you're fired without pay until you decide to get vaccinated. And they've done it. And, and, they've, they've su- and they've survived challenges. Why did they survive the challenges locally? And why do so many people believe they, that the president won't survive this uh, nationally? That's because the unfortunate aspect for those litigants is the very reason why the Biden administration is up against it in front of the Supreme Court. Most of those individuals are contesting local rules, state rules. 
that's where public health largely resides in the Constitution. The Constitution leaves it to the states to uh, protect public health and welfare. So when they issue these types of rules, um, they're given a, a huge amount of deference. Uh, they're acting within their traditional role. You could disagree with them, but they're acting within that role. The federal government has not been given that authority. Um, even these statutes don't clearly give them uh, this authority. So for people challenging the mandates, they're up against it. That because the CDC has said that we think this does protect uh, workers, um, states and private businesses have a lot of legal support for saying we want to follow the CDC guidelines. So in terms of performance and who's arguing these cases, that how, what role would that play? I mean, if you go out there and present a stronger case than the other guy, even though fundamentally these Supreme Court justices, if you look at their track record, have uh, they you do have an idea of how they feel about this? Yeah, and that's a good thing. You know, the, the, the justices are consistent. While people often say, "Oh my gosh, those those six conservatives are ideologues because they always vote the same way," they ignore that there are three justices on the other end that show the same consistency. And that's because they have a sense of their own jurisprudence. You want them to be consistent. So in a case like this, it's unlikely that the oral argument is going to change a lot of views. The biggest risk is a misstep, like a Ron Klain misstep. Klain put the administration in a perfectly horrible position. I mean, I wouldn't be surprised when these justices raised this. And says, well, is this all your part of your workaround that Mr. Klain talks about? You know, so you could have a misstep where someone gives a concession. Right. But I wouldn't bet on it. Here, here's Jen Psaki talking about um, these mandates. And, you know, we're, gonna, we're asking postal workers to deliver 500 million tests uh, while at the same time firing the ones that aren't vaccinated. Uh, cut five. I would say, just to remind everybody, two months ago, more than two months ago, um, OSHA issued an emergency temporary standard to protect workers from the spread of coronavirus on the job, everywhere, uh, at companies, including the Postal Service. So we will let OSHA speak to any response to the letter. But again, I just wanted to remind people that when it was issued, it was made clear that uh, the Postal Service could be compliant and had the ability to do that and still conduct their jobs. Well, uh, everyone's going to be shorthanded, including our military, because of these mandates that they are. This is not that's not being effectively challenged. Right. That's right. And once again, there's some of these areas where the government has uh, almost unbridled authority and and is establishing the rules for their own workforce where they tend to get into difficulty is the failure to grant religious exemptions uh, or those types of challenges. But the courts really are still groping on the edges here. I mean, one of the big questions that the courts haven't really answered is the logic of requiring vaccination with someone who has natural immunities because they've already had the virus. The CDC still wants you to have the vaccine, but courts really haven't gotten into the actual science on this and whether that's arbitrary and capricious to demand a vaccine above natural immunity. Do you know anything about the Navy SEAL case that got stayed uh, that said you're out unless you get vaccinated? The Navy SEALs sued, and now I think 40-plus are wondering what's going to happen. What do you you know about that case? 
Yeah, quite frankly, Brian, I was surprised by that uh, decision because this is an area of huge deference to the government. Uh, you're talking about military order and discipline. Uh, courts tend to avoid second-guessing these types of uh, restrictions. I'm skeptical that uh, they can prevail in the long run uh, through the appellate process. It was a major win, uh, but I haven't seen any published rationale for the court, but um, the court clearly believed that the merits were on their side. For preliminary injunctions, the courts tend, really are locked into a very tough standard. They have to say that you are likely to prevail on the merits. So when you grant an injunction, uh, it's an indication that you think that ultimately this party will win. Yesterday on January 6th, I know you wrote about this, and your, your column talks about this is more about desecration than it is insurrection. What, what is the, why make that dissemination? What do you want people to get from that? Well, I, just, I actually just posted another column on this because uh, this morning on the blog because um, there was a recent uh, poll done by CBS, uh, which was frankly quite surprising in that um, it, when it asked people, how would you describe <laughs> January uh, 6th, they said insurrection, overthrow of the government, and then the other alternatives were patriotism and something else. So you couldn't say riot. You couldn't say a protest that became a riot, right? And it left all of us just in, it just dumbfounded. You know, you either join the Proud Boys and say this is an act of patriotism, uh, or you say it's an insurrection or a rebellion. But what CBS did is they had another question that they did not report fully, where they asked straight up, was this a protest uh, that went too far? And a huge percentage of the public said, yes, that's how we view it. And that's what it was. There's no indication this was an insurrection. The FBI arrested hundreds, investigated thousands. They didn't charge a single person with rebellion, sedition, insurrection. Most of them are charged with relatively minor crimes like trespass, unlawful entry. And so the question is, why do you want to call it an insurrection? Yesterday, Pelosi told her members, we need to, quote, preserve the narrative, close quote. Um, and that narrative is this was an actual rebellion, an actual insurrection. What makes this dangerous is that members are now pushing to disqualify Republican members and even Trump himself under the 14th Amendment. They're saying this was an insurrection, and therefore you're no better than Confederate rebels in yeah. uh, the 1860s. So the, this, it's a CBS study that they didn't want to report. Uh, they said among those, the 2,000-plus on January 6th, were asked this question. Was this a protest that went too far? 80% were Republicans that said yes. 69% were Democrats that said yes. That's unbelievable. Trump voters, 84%. I mean, if you look at, for example, the text message from Don Trump Jr., he was a keynote speaker at that ill-fated rally, which he never should have had, my opinion. And then he was texting Mark Meadows saying, Mark, get him on the Oval Office. Tell everybody to stop. So if he was, this was part of some great conspiracy to take over the White House and keep the president in office, no one told his oldest son. Right. Well, you know, the fact is that the FBI couldn't find any evidence of an insurrection. Right. It is what it appeared to be. It was a protest that was allowed to become a riot due to a failure to prepare. Even though this was long planned, we now know that the National Guard was offered. The White House did not 
stand in the way of deploying the National Guard. We know that critical intelligence was not shared. These were blunders on the Hill. That doesn't mean that these rioters are not at fault. They are. They should be punished for what they did if they went into the Capitol and caused damage and did these other things. But it doesn't mean that this was a rebellion. It doesn't mean it's an insurrection. Those terms have legal meaning. So I just thought, I want to play this, even though it's not exactly your area of expertise, uh, I just want you to, I was struck by the tone of President Biden's speech. They said it was this great speech. It sounded like a campaign speech, and it sounds, in my view, that the Democrats are fearing that Trump's running again, and and the fact that they took him off social media, they have this uh, terrible day, he doesn't show up for the inauguration, they thought he was done. Uh, He's now back. Cut 11. For the first time in our history, a president had not just lost an election, he tried to prevent the peaceful transfer of power as a violent mob breached the Capitol. They failed. And on this day of remembrance, we must make sure that such attack never, never happens again. He values power over principle because he sees his own interest as more important than his country's interest, than America's interest. And because his bruised ego matters more to him than our democracy or our Constitution, he's not just a former president. He's a defeated former president. Defeated by a margin of over 7 million of your votes. Hmm, That's a kind of interesting uh, speech to make at the Capitol. Yeah, you know, it's funny. One of the great disappointments I have uh, with the Biden administration was that this is a different Biden than I saw in the Senate. I actually really liked Senator Biden. Look, he, he was sort of inauthentic as a politician. He tended to go with the polls. But he also actually had – he was someone that if you if you cut a deal with him, if you made a promise, he carried out. He was someone that crossed the over to the other side, worked out compromises. That's not what we're seeing in, in, in the White House today. I mean, this is a different – Biden, I was hoping uh, against a recent experience that he would come out and say, look, we all must condemn what happened on January 6th. We all should make sure it doesn't happen again. We all should find out exactly what occurred to make sure that it doesn't happen again. But now maybe we need to come together, right, to, to do what he said he was going to do, to say, let's actually see if we can move beyond this age of rage. And, and be one country again. Those are the words of a president, you know, not a backroom politician. And that's not what we heard. It's not what we're having. But I think maybe we'll look back and think the Georgia election might have been the worst thing that ever happened to the administration. We'll see when they thought it was the best. Uh, uh, Jonathan Turley, always great to talk to you. I look forward to talking to you after the verdict. <laughs> Thanks very much. You got it. one 866 I'll be back with your calls. I know you have a lot to say. Oh, we're closing out a big week. This is The Brian Kilmeade Show. Expanding your knowledge base, it's Brian Kilmeade. The more you listen, the more you'll know. It's Brian Kilmeade. 
when you look at what happened and at the attack uh, that happened on January 6th, I think it's different uh, from what happened on 9-11, different from Pearl Harbor. Obviously, 3,000 Americans died in each of those uh, events, each of those attacks. Uh, but, but this was a mob that was summoned by and provoked by the President of the United States uh, in an effort to stop the counting of electoral votes, which is a constitutional uh, process. And so I do think the attacks are very different. I think there is a grave threat, certainly, uh, to our system, uh, to our, our constitutional institutions. And I think we have to set partisanship aside and party politics aside to get to the bottom of what happened and make sure that it doesn't happen again. Right. So Liz Cheney was trying to delicately say that the vice president of the United States was way over her skis in saying this was September 11th or December 7th. It is not uh, 1941. Do you understand? Not even close. And just when I said, and I'm not the first one to say this, I'm not pretending I am, but I just said, you just watch them maximize this whole thing out for political gain. Why? Because they used to maximize the pandemic because Joe Biden was looked at somebody mature enough to handle the pandemic and listen to the science. And a year later, things are worse. More are dead. Tests aren't ordered. Therapeutics aren't used. So, I got to wait on January 6th. I'm going to go down there. I'm going to have the vice president speak, and then I'm going to have the president speak, and then I'm going to have all these lawmakers speak, and then I'm going to have the singers from Hamilton, the play, introduced by the Speaker of the House that made absolutely no sense. It made the James Taylor appearance in France after they were victims of a terror attack seem more logical. Absolutely insane. And even Liz Cheney, who doesn't want to go out of her way to do anything nice for Republicans, despite the fact that she's running as a Republican, Liz Cheney came out and says, I don't really see the equivalence here because she's still a conservative. And that is a fact. And the vice president saying what she said, uh, whoever loaded her prompter, absolutely ridiculous. Here's Newt Gingrich, cut 18. Biden gave the most viciously partisan personal assault I think any American president has ever given. I I can't remember any other speech that had the kind of vitriol, the kind of divisiveness, the kind of just plain nastiness that was in Biden's speech today. And these folks have mastered this hypocrisy of saying, right after I finish beating you up, punching you in the kidneys, kicking you on the ground, can I stand there and tell everybody else how much I want us to work together? And he went on, and I can't play the whole thing, to talk about Harris's ridiculous comparison of 9-11 and December 7th, Pearl Harbor Day. And he's a historian. And he also is a politician, so he gets it. It just was stupid. Just dumb. BrianKillMe.com. Get the president and freedom fighter. Live from the Fox News Radio Studios in New York City, fresh off the set of Fox and Friends, it's America's receptive voice, Brian Kilmeade. Thanks so much for listening, everybody. It's the Brian Kilmeade Show, 1-866-408-7669. Coming to you from a snowy New York City, heard around the country, heard around the world. Diane Maftis will be with us. You know, she's now with ABC, started at Macedo, I should say. Uh, she'll be with us. To, you know, she started with Fox, done a great job. Now she's with ABC. Got a brand new book out. Uh, and every time I do this topic, it breaks through the roof. And a lot of it is because I do a morning show, and I've been doing a morning show for over 20 years. And most people watching either didn't sleep or want to sleep more. And it's called The Sleep Fix, pra- uh, Practical, Proven, and Surprising Solutions to Insomnia, Snoring, Shift Work, and More. Uh, and Diane also had the same hours as, as me when she was with Fox Business 
Uh, and then we have uh, standing by Ian Bremmer, one of the most knowledgeable foreign policy guys uh, in the country. He'll be talking about the world and the dangers as we look upon 2022. Some news that was not anticipated. Kazakhstan seems to be coming apart. Russia has flown in troops to help them out on the request of their brutal uh, dictator. And we'll see what's happening there. We got things changing over in Iran on a moment to moment basis. We have Beijing keeping their powder dry because they have the Olympics to host. What happens after is going to be fascinating and challenging, as well as Russia, 100,000 troops on the border of the Ukraine with meetings with the U.S. Uh, on the diplomatic level and NATO coming straight ahead. So let's get to the big three. Now with the stories you need to know, it's Brian's Big Three. Number three. Would these policies give criminals a green light? No. I mean, it, it, it just depends upon your definition of criminal. Uh, and for all too long, we've kind of dealt with this othering of, you know, anyone we put in jail is a, a criminal. Crime crisis, murders hit records, and new DAs are wrecking any chance of bringing back law and order to our streets. Is there a hope for change outside a recall or another election? Number two. Certain dates echo throughout history. December 7th, 1941. September 11th, 2001. And January 6th, 2021. Predictable. Marking a horrible day in our history, January uh, January 6th. Now it's morphed into an anti-Republican, anti-Trump festival of verbal barbs and hyperbolic speeches. And as usual, the vice president way over her skis in equating what the actual attack was as it relates to Pearl Harbor and 9-11. Number one. Six former members of Biden's health advisory board have urged the administration in a series of op-eds to scrap their pandemic strategy and embrace this new normal of living with endemic COVID. The doctors calling out the administration's previous claims about making progress on the pandemic premature and also urging humility. Jackie Heinrich yesterday doing a wrap-up of what was happening with the approach to the pandemic. Now we're going to our third year. We need a new approach. That's what a medical, a series of medical experts aligned with President Biden and Democrats are calling for when it comes to fighting this pandemic. Not a Republican critics. These were his transition team experts as we currently battle it out on school closures, vax mandates, and sit back flabbergasted with the inexplicable, unacceptable lack of tests from coast to coast. With me right now is Ian Bremmer. He sees the way we're handling it, compares it the way other countries are handling it. Ian, welcome back. Hey, always good to talk to you, Brian. Hey, same here. President of the Eurasia Group. And I also watched your contribution to Fried Sakaria's show on where we're at now with President Xi and China. I found that fascinating and educational, and we'll get to that. First things first, you're, one of your lines as you look at the challenges of this year is, we might be done with this coronavirus, but it's not done with us. What does that mean? Well, uh, you know, obviously we're seeing gaudy case levels uh, in the United States right now, record levels. Um, but as we're looking at the entirety of 2022, Brian, uh, I'm actually feeling better uh, about the United States and Europe. Uh, the next few weeks are not going to feel that way. But as you know, Omicron is much more transmissible, but it's not as severe. Hospitalizations and deaths much lower than you would have seen under Delta. And so by the end of first quarter, I think that most of the wealthy world, given vaccines, given much better therapeutics, the COVID pill that we're rolling out that's already been approved, is going to feel like we're living with the virus. It, it, in other words, things will be open and we're going to get through the pandemic. China, on the other hand, which had by far the most effective response to COVID back in 2020 because they could track and trace, they could quarantine, they could lock down, and that got their economy back up and running. They were the only major economy that was actually growing back in 2020. 2022 
their zero COVID policy, which they are completely committed to, is focused on cases, not on hospitalizations, not on deaths, is really going to work badly because they're going to be fighting in an incredibly explosively transmissible variant and having to shut down cities which, with, with, with vaccines that really don't work well at all in responding to spread. So this year, while the Americans, the Europeans are getting back to normal, the Chinese are going to have major lockdowns, and that's going to lead to challenges for growth. And all of us that rely on Chinese goods in our supply chain going to have bigger problems in 2022. Yeah, a couple of things with that. We now, this is a city of 13 million. They basically locked down. And if you're a mayor and you allow this, uh, this any variant to take root, you go to jail. I mean, that's right. And these people are complaining there's no food. So they're locked up in their apartments, their houses, and they need food to be delivered. The food's not getting delivered. So these are some of the reports coming out of China, and we're on the threshold of them hosting the Olympics. They can host the Olympics. They can, I mean, you, again, the, given the extraordinary power of that government, they can put the entire Olympics in a bubble and keep it separate from the Chinese population at large. But what they can't do is put their production in a bubble. And you're right. Chinese people will suffer. Chinese government doesn't care very much about that. Um, but the, the Chinese uh, ports already, Ningbo, which is one of their larger ports, it's not shut down. But so many cities around it are facing disruptions that they're operating at about one-third capacity right now. It's really going to matter over the course of the year because, I mean, Omicron's not going away. And, you know, because Chinese don't haven't, they haven't gotten COVID, they don't have the antibodies. Right. So, I mean, it, in other words, the longer they lock down, the harder it is actually to open up. This is a real problem for them. You know, the thing is, Ian, I, I'm surprised that you take their numbers and their reports at face value. Do you have do you have people over there? Do you really think only four thousand people died from the, the this no, COVID-19? No, I, I think it's higher than that. But look, I'm, and, I, and I never take Chinese numbers at face value, of course. But I, I have plenty of clients that we work with that have thousands and thousands of employees that are working inside China who have not gotten sick. They've not gotten COVID. I mean, they know the disposition of their employees. So, I mean, just looking at the percentages of Chinese that have been laid up with the virus over the last few years compared to Americans and Europeans, the numbers are tiny. I am absolutely certain in the first couple of months of COVID, when the Chinese were lying about human-to-human spread, there were a lot of deaths in Wuhan that we're never going to find out about. I accept that. But in terms of nationwide COVID, they locked down. They kept their people in their apartments. They kept they, they shut down factories, and they didn't get COVID. And that worked really well in 2020. It worked okay with Delta. It's going to fail with Omicron. And, you know, we, we've got mRNA vaccines that actually really make a difference, even in reducing spread once you've gotten the booster. Chinese government refuses to license Moderna and Pfizer. They're waiting to develop their own Chinese mRNA vaccines, which aren't going to be ready for the population until the end of this year at earliest. So there's a, there's a six to eight uh, President Biden uh, advisors that during his transition that have come yes. out and uh, written a series of articles talking about how we have to have a brand new approach to fighting this uh, COVID-19 virus and these variants. And they said yes. right now one of the axioms is you, we can't keep chasing this with boosters. And at one point, we have to uh, stop the booster madness uh, because, number one, do we continue to give generic boosters or do we give specific Omicron boosters, Delta boosters? And is it possible to stay ahead of the next variant rather than just fall victim to it and learn to do this most important thing, live with it, rather than try to eradicate it? 
So I think it says something that they have to go to publication to get their points across. Look, I think that this government is extremely risk averse. Uh, You saw that with vaccine diplomacy. Today, we're doing more in donating vaccines around the world than everybody else combined. But we were really late to that ballgame because nobody – we wanted to stockpile just in case absolute worst-case scenario. We could have looked a lot better around the world. There's there's just a lot of conservatism and caution. And I I was glad to see those advisors come out, and they they weren't being rude about it. But they were saying, look, the pandemic is very different today. Our tools to fight the pandemic are very different today, and we need to, as a consequence, rebalance our approach. It's not like – I mean there are risks inherent in shutting down schools for kids for two years, and you have to pay attention to those too. I I really do believe that the reality of the United States is we're not controlled by our federal government. We've got state governments. We've got city governments. We're a federal system. And and the responsiveness to uh, to public to public opinion is real in this country, unlike in China. And so even if Biden didn't want to change his approach, the approach is going to change. The word humility came out to me in their document. You have to have a humility to this and saying, even proclaiming that we're going to uh, we're going to uh, eradicate the virus is not practical and should not be promised. And, and the word should not be used. And I think we have to realize that. Number two is, do you also think that the one thing that I think you can honestly say that is a failure is not filling out an invoice to get millions of tests when you got trillions of dollars, right? I, yeah, we have, we have failed completely at testing, and this has been all the way through 2020. Uh, I mean, you remember the initial tests that we had? Um, and they didn't work very well. And the Germans offered us much better tests, and we said no. We decided we we're going to go with our approach. And so as a consequence, for several months, we were flat-footed in being able to chase the virus. And now, I mean, we've got Americans. When Biden first became president, he said, uh, we don't have tests. That's not going to no, – excuse me. When he was running for president, he said we we'd completely failed on tests, and that was something that would change when Biden was president. It didn't. And, you know, here we are with Omicron, and it was only after the spread uh, that we're talking about getting uh, – and with, with millions I – mean, we went yesterday, what, 750,000 cases in one day, a million with the backlog uh, on Monday. And, we, you know, we, you've seen all the lines around the country, in some cases hours and hours long, just to get a test done. That is not the way the world's superpower should be behaving. Right, and uh, the mandates are never going to fly here, and it's, gonna ca- it's causing more uh, di- division – within our country, if that's indeed possible. I want to pivot if we can, and we'll find out what the Supreme Court says at some point today. I believe the oral arguments have begun uh, because two of those cases that are arguing against mandates are, are yeah. right now in front of an emergency session of the Supreme Court. I want to go what you say about midterms. You believe this is the most important midterms than you can remember in our history. You, this is your quote. Uh, the 2022 midterms will be one of the most important in U.S. history. The votes will take place amid allegations of fraud by both Democrats and Republicans. You want to expand on that? Sure. You know, uh, Brian, as as you say, I I work on foreign policy. I look all over the world. And we've had elections in the last few months in Germany, Japan, Canada, perfectly legitimate, perfectly free, perfectly fair, transfer of power. Next few months, you'll see South Korea and France, same thing. It's not a crisis of global democracy. It's a crisis of U.S. Uh, The political divisions in our country are extraordinary. And And a fundamental precept of a representative democracy is you're able to hold a legitimate, free, and fair national election. And we can no longer say that in the United States. And this started back in 2016, 
after Trump was freely and fairly elected. Uh, Hillary Clinton conceded, but a large number of Democrats said that the election was stolen and that he colluded with the Russians. And even when that narrative was found to be false, they kept with it. And it really undermined the ability to see Trump as a legitimate president. Then in 2020, President Trump himself drove a false narrative saying that the election had been stolen, even though Republicans in, in states like Georgia and Arizona themselves certified the outcome. And so a year later, more people that voted for Trump, larger percentages say the election was stolen and Biden is not a legitimate president. In fact, millions of Americans even say that Trump should remove Biden from power by force if necessary. It's unheard of to hear that sort of thing from the United States. And now we have 2022, where the Republicans are almost certain to take the House. Uh, they're very likely to take the Senate. They are likely to take um, significant um, state houses and gubernatorial races in key swing states, which really matter for certifying election outcomes in 2024. And the Republican Party is still Trump's party. And, and so, I mean, no matter what, if that, if that is the outcome of the midterm, no matter what the outcome of 2024, our election is going to feel step change once again, even more broken. And, you know, this is not just a problem for American democracy. It's a problem for the way we are seen and perceived by our allies and our adversaries all around the world. Can they count on us? Will they try to take advantage of us? It's a serious problem. We've got to get our house in order. 100%. I agree with everything you said, and I even said it today on TV uh, almost uh, without reading this until I got to radio, is that uh, it really did damage to the country in 2016. Even John Lewis came out and said, I'm not going to the inauguration. He's an illegitimate president. And, and we watched that for three and a half years. And then when Fred, they finally admitted that President Trump won in the last year as we were in the backstretch of his fourth year. And then Trump did irreparable damage by saying over and over again, this was stolen. And, and I give Vice President Pence and those people uh, credit for coming out and, and, and doing what they did. I don't want to go over to that. But what yeah. do you think it means, real quick, for 2024 and Trump running again? Uh, I think that almost no matter what the outcome is in 2024, if 2022 goes the way we expect, the 2024 election will be perceived to be illegitimate and broken by the losing side. Biden said this in his speech yesterday, a fiery and fairly divisive speech, where he said, you know, he points out Trump and he said, you can't just be, you know, a patriot uh, when your side is winning. You have to believe in your country both ways. I, I think we are not going to learn that lesson. I think in 2024, no matter what happens in the election, it is almost inconceivable that losers are going to be prepared to accept the outcome. And that is not the that's not the sign of a functional democracy. When when you believe that your principal enemy is not the Chinese or the Russians or the Iranians, but is your political adversary across the aisle, your democracy doesn't live for long well when that happens. Yeah, I, I would love to see a, a sense in this country when you lose, when your side or your party loses, you don't feel like you lost everything right now. Either side Absolutely. feels like they lose everything when they lose. And that only a moderate getting elected uh, would actually solve that, I believe. Ian Bremmer, thanks so much. Always educational. Be good, man. You got it. Ian Bremmer, the Eurasia Group, uh, top risk of 2022. If you're interested in it, Brian's talking about it. You're with Brian Kilmeade. There's no clinical evidence to support the continuing boosters over and over again. Um, there was uh, barely enough clinical evidence, I believe, for a third shot for, for uh, and I think for cer certain groups of people, 
but certainly not a universal boostering and certainly not for fourth, fifth boosters. I think the problem is they're still thinking about using the vaccine to get rid of the disease. Well, we've seen the vaccine does not stop the disease from spreading. The vaccine can protect against severe disease, and that's a really good thing, but it is not useful for getting the virus down to zero. Right. So we have to get a group together with no pharmaceutical or hospital ties that have to be in uh, epidemiologists and people that we could agree on are, are the leading th- the thought leaders when it comes to this pandemic. And we have to take a step back to this booster mania because now you have the West Virginia governor, and I'm one of his biggest fans, Jim Justice, has now asked the federal government for permission to start offering fourth shots, fourth shots. You know uh, they are now telling college kids, do not come back to campus unless you've had a booster. What booster? What do you mean? You gave them, you made them take vaccines, even though you had no legitimate study outside the emergency use study before they went to school. Now you're making them get a booster when we know this booster does not directly address a variant that Dr. Scott Gottlieb is saying and others agree is going to be leaving us in two weeks. Now they get them fourth and fifth. It's not becoming a slippery slope. We are all on the slippery slope. We have to get off it quickly. Radio that makes you think. This is the Brian Kilmeade Show. Hi, everybody. Welcome back to Brian Kilmeade Show, 1 866 408 7669. I'll get to your calls in about 10 minutes, but right now it's my privilege to bring in uh, Diane Macedo, an Emmy Award winning journalist, anchor, and correspondent. Won all award- she won all her awards after she left Fox. I don't know if it's a coincidence. She's now with ABC author of a brand new book, The Sleep Fix, Practical, Proven, and Surprising Solutions for Insomnia, Snoring, Shift Work, and More. Uh, Diane, I know you do shift work because the first time I met you was coming to work because you were working at FBN and at Fox, and we were up in the middle of the night. We sure were, and that's where it all started. But, Brian, first I just want to say hi. It's so nice to talk to you, hear your voice, and, and I'm so grateful for you having me on today. I always know you're going to be great, uh, and but I was hoping you were going to do it at Fox. Maybe you'll come back. <laughs> But but you would you wrote this book because you were addressing a problem you were having. I did. You know, for years I had trouble sleeping, and I kind of dismissed it as just, well, that's how I'm built. Uh, but eventually it got so bad that I just couldn't ignore it anymore. And so I started reading, you know, popular books about sleep and articles and whatnot and trying all the typical tips that you see out there. And I just kept getting worse and worse. And eventually I went to my doctor. She prescribed Ambien and convinced me to take it because I was super hesitant. Um, And I did. And for a while, it was like magic. And then eventually the Ambien stopped working, too. And my doctor's suggestion was just to take more. But I kind of decided then and there that that was not going to be the way forward for me. And so I started, I became kind of a sleep nerd. I started reading sleep textbooks and books that were written by clinicians who treat people with sleep problems. And that's where I found my answers. And I was surprised at how practical most of them were, how quickly they worked for me, and how different they were than everything else that I was kind of hearing out there. And so I just kind of thought to myself, why isn't anybody talking about this stuff? And uh, and eventually I ended up writing the book that I wish had existed when I was struggling. And so here we are with the sleep fix. So you had the insomnia thing. You had trouble sleeping. Uh, and we also know the ramifications of not sleeping because it's amazing. Every time I do a book like this, uh, I read uh, a book about sleep, I'm saying to myself, I check all the boxes on danger because I only sleep about four hours. I go to about 10 to 215, 220, um, and which is problematic long term, although I'm still alive barely. 
Uh, what are some of the if I choose not to address it, what did you find out happens if people aren't addressing their sleep issues? I mean, the list is endless, honestly. And if I can tell you for me, I went through years of sleep deprivation due to my strange sleep schedule and due to insomnia, which was the anxiety that was keeping me awake. And, you know, I, I alone had dry eyes. I had acid reflux. My brain always felt kind of foggy. It was like my body felt like it was on fire all the time. I had a lot of trouble focusing. I started noticing mood changes in myself. And I didn't associate any of these things with my sleep. Nor did I do a whole lot to address them other than my acid reflux. And little did I know that as soon as I fixed my sleep, all of these things went away. And that was the experience of a lot of the people I interviewed for the book. They had all these symptoms that they were attributing to other things. And once they fixed fixed their sleep, their health improved dramatically. So some of the things you address, you address snoring, you address insomnia, people that wake up in the middle of the night. Uh, So let's let's address them. What are some of the ways if people cannot sleep? What are some of the ways you address this? So I think the key number one is to try to figure out what it is that's actually keeping you awake because there are a lot of different things that can keep us awake. And I think we often are misled to believe that if we all just follow these perfect 10 tips, then we're all going to sleep great. But it really depends on what your actual problem is. And so that's kind of where the book starts in trying to walk people through some of the common sleep disorders and some of the nuances between them because we often just assume everything is insomnia and there are a lot of other things that are easily confused for insomnia like mind racing very common sorry like you're racing you have trouble settling down shutting off your brain yes so so that is probably the most common right people say i can't sleep because i can't shut my brain off and so you know one is that in itself is a misconception that we're supposed to be able to kind of turn off our thoughts to go to sleep our brains are always active even while we're sleeping but what i found was most helpful to me and a lot of the clinicians that i spoke to echoed this is a practice called constructive worry and i just like to call it a brain dump or a worry list and it's so simple you just take a notebook Divide the page down the center. On the left-hand side, you write down anything that's on your mind. Dump your brain out onto the page. And then on the right-hand side, you write down the very next step to resolving that issue. You may not even know the ultimate solution, and that's fine. Just the next step to, to drive it in the right direction. Maybe it's just to call a friend who knows more about that issue than you do. And when you run out of things to write down on the page, the exercise is over. And when I read about this, I thought, well, Ambien doesn't put me to sleep anymore, but this this notebook thing is going to. But it works because by giving your mind this opportunity to kind of process your thoughts and feelings from the day, it alleviates the need to do that in bed. Because so many, so many of us are not giving ourselves the opportunity to do that because we're go, go, go all day and we're on our phones whenever we're not. The other thing is if by giving yourself this moment to do this kind of processing of your thoughts and feelings, your brain starts to form an association that, oh, this is where we stay awake and we worry, not when my head hits the pillow. Because for most of us, we have formed this association that our bed is where we stay awake and worry. So we have to divorce that association. This helps to do that. And it also, part of the reason we get repetitive thoughts when we're laying in bed is our brain just trying to remind us to deal with these issues. And so once you've written it on the page, you alleviate the need for that reminder. And then finally, it gets you focused on solutions as opposed to just ruminating on problems, which is something we can really get stuck in when we're in that insomnia cycle. And after about two, three weeks, most of the clinicians I spoke to say, you don't even have to do this daily notebook exercise anymore. Your brain just kind of gets the memo and starts to do this automatically. And I found for me, it was super effective after just two weeks. 
I didn't have to do anymore. It was like my brain just understood bed on pillow means it's time to sleep, not time to stay awake and worry about what I'm going to be for Halloween in five months. Interesting. Uh, so a couple of things. What about what do you do about snoring? What does that indicate? Is that is that a problem that you address? Yeah, well, interestingly, snoring is something we often think of as just a problem for the bed partner, but snoring has been shown to disrupt the sleep of the snorer themselves, even if they don't have sleep apnea, which many, many snorers do. So one, if you snore, get screened for sleep apnea. But there are also a lot of kind of things you can do at home that may alleviate it for you. For example, using nasal strips or using a nasal dilator. Uh, A lot of people who have sleep apnea don't want to get diagnosed, or if they are diagnosed, they don't want to use their CPAP machine because they don't like the idea of sleeping with a CPAP. Many cases of sleep insomnia can be relieved with the use of a proper mouth guard. So a lot of people, I think, are avoiding going to the doctor and even getting diagnosed because they don't want that machine on their face. You don't necessarily need that. And there are several other things, body positioners and so on, lots of different choices that people have to look at and decide what they think will work best for them. And certain apps that you can use to then record yourself while you sleep so you can monitor what's having the best results for you. And anyone who is going to a doctor and seeing a specialist because they do have sleep apnea, that doctor should be able to talk you through other options if you feel the CPAP is not something you can use. They should be able to talk you through what other options are available to you so you can find the best solution for you. So Diane uh, Macedo's with us now. She's author of The Sleep Fix. It's now out this week. Diane, what about uh, people who... I uh, want to know how many hours they need to sleep. Why does it vary so much? Well, I'm glad you said that because most people think they need, quote, unquote, the recommended eight hours, and that's a myth. You know, we need most adults, according to the National Sleep Foundation, need somewhere between seven and nine hours, but the range can be anywhere from five to 11 hours. And I think that's important because a lot of us, we worry about the ramifications of not getting enough sleep, but nobody talks about the opposite end of the coin. If you're someone who, say, needs six hours and you're trying to force yourself to get eight hours, all that time spent awake and worrying in bed is going to give you insomnia. And so for I think the key is just to monitor how you feel. If you feel you know, like you need a nap all day, if you're the kind of person who's sort of dozing off when you sit down in a waiting room or when you sit down to watch TV in the middle of the day, that's a sign that something's wrong. And if you feel like you're getting enough sleep and enough time in bed, then something's disrupting your sleep without you noticing it. And it could be sleep apnea. It could be uh, lots of other complications can do that. And so that's a sign that you want to get checked out. It's not normal to feel that way and to doze off a lot during the day. On the flip side, if you feel good, your energy levels are good overall, you feel okay all day, then that's a sign you're probably getting enough sleep, even if it's not the quote-unquote recommended eight hours. And I think a lot of people assume they can't have a sleep disorder because they think they are getting those eight hours when actually their sleep is being disrupted. So it's much more about how you feel than it is the hours on the clock or the hours on your fitness tracker. How do you know if you're getting enough sleep? I think it's just how how you feel. There's no kind of proper litmus test to know, oh, I am exactly – a six-hour person, but if you go to bed when you feel sleepy, you sleep reasonably through the night, it's normal to wake up, you know, let's say once during the night or whatnot, and we all wake up very briefly after every sleep cycle, just most of us don't remember it, but if you wake up in the morning and you're not fighting your alarm clock, you can wake up sort of almost naturally, et cetera, and you feel pretty good in the morning, then that's a sign you're getting enough sleep. If on the flip side, you're taking a long time to fall asleep, you wake up and you take a long time to fall back 
sleep or you feel excessively sleepy in the morning when your alarm clock goes off, <laughs> you, you feel terrible like you didn't get enough sleep at all, or again, you feel sleepy during the day, those are signs that you're not getting enough. All right. Is there things that you walked away with when you started studying your own problem and realized there was a book here? Are there things that you walked away with that you want everyone to know, regardless of what they're dealing with, about sleep? Yeah, I think more than anything that this isn't something that you just have to deal with. One of the most common things I heard in interviewing people for this book was, oh, that's just the way I am. I'm just a bad sleeper. And so many of us, even since childhood, have been called, quote, unquote, bad sleepers, that we've kind of programmed ourselves to think that that's a normal thing. And it's not. All of these things, they are treatable, and they will absolutely change your life once you address these issues. And what's interesting is how many other things then start to fall into place with that. Because sleep is connected to so many other things that we do. That for me, for example, as soon as I started sleeping better, not only did those symptoms that I told you about, my dry eyes, my acid reflux and all that stuff start getting better, but I also started eating better because when we're sleep deprived, we have a tendency to crave bad foods and to crave foods at inappropriate times. So fixing my sleep then made me start eating better, which obviously has its own health ramifications. And you find that it's one of those things where you pull on this thread and so many other things get better as a result. All right. Uh, Diane, how are you doing? You like it over at ABC? I can't complain. You know, I'm, I'm good right now. My family's good. My colleagues are great. Uh, I'm, I'm a happy camper, but I am really happy to be talking with you again as well, Brian. Absolutely, Diane. We hope we get you on Fox and Friends, too. Diane Macedo, pick up her book, The Sleep Fix, A Practical, Proven, and Surprising Solutions for Insomnia, Snoring, Shift Work, and More. Thanks, Diane. Oh, great to talk to you, Brian. Have a good one. All right, good. I will memorize this book. When we come back, your calls one eight six six four zero eight seven six six nine. Don't move. Educating. Entertaining. Enlightening. You're with Brian Kilmeade. Breaking news, unique opinions. Hear it all on the Brian Kilmeade Show. Hey, welcome back, everybody. Have a chance to, to get to your calls in a moment and more to know in just a second. Just got to urge you to pick up President Freedom Fighter. Uh, it's still on the list, thanks to all you guys. Number nine of the country in the New York Times list. Just go to briankilmeade.com, and I can get it personalized for you if you go there, or Amazon, of course, will deliver it. Or if you're like me, I get it on the e-reader. So let's get uh, let's get to the calls. Bill, listening in Virginia Beach, WNIS. Hey, Bill. Hey, Brian, how are you? Good. What's on your mind? Hey, um, I love your um, patriotism and everything. Um, but I will say this. I think this is a spiritual war, Brian, more than it is about keeping America, uh, you know, making it as keeping it as patriotic. I'm feeling right now like I'm being not taking the vaccine i feel like i'm one of the lepers years ago or i'm one of the jews and i'm being but italy is my understanding has made it mandatory to take it i've had cipro an antibiotic to put me in a wheelchair within a month and i've been for over three years recovering trying to get back on my feet to be able to walk normally and i'm going to have to take that apparently even though I've even wrote, wrote a book about my terrible allergies, I even had a book about it, but there's no there's no lenience for anything. It's, it, to me now, we seem to have a soulless nation. We let those people in Afghanistan, left them over there. We're making people do things they don't want to do against the Constitution. This is a soulless nation. Well, the spiritually, whole, like you our, said, though, our country is yeah. dying spiritually. Well, we, I, I'm we not sure about to, that. Wait, wait, hold on a second. 
Uh, I'm not sure we're dying spiritually because of the mandates. As you mentioned, Italy's doing this, New Zealand's doing this, Australia's out of control. It's not just these oppressive Russia-China situations. So this this whole world is handling this terribly. And uh, we just expect more. When President Biden says, I can't mandate vaccines, that's not what we do. And then he's mandating vaccines. We've got to take him to court to stop it. Uh, that's out of control. And the mandates do nothing but create more division. You might get your numbers up. But now we're finding out that we don't even know about the durability of this or if it's even helping us as much as they said it was early on. Let's find out if there's more to know. More to know. So this really hits home. You know, I like to drink Corona. Well, it turns out Corona and Modelo beers will cost more due to inflation and supply chain woes. Constellation Brands, the largest beer import company in the U.S., told shareholders this on an earning call yesterday. The company said the higher freight warehousing costs brought on by disruptions of the supply chain. Also, by the way, glass bottles are going up around the country. Modelo, I can live without. Corona, I probably will not survive. Next. So when you go to the uh, the bars for drinks, instead of getting the Corona, will you get more melon ball shots? I'm not sure. Next, Uber slams riders with a $600 bill during the I-95 storm. Think about this. You hop in an Uber and you're stuck in a car for 22 hours. Who's paying that? Andrew Peters of Richmond was returning from San Francisco and did not understand the severity of the situation when he took an Uber to Dulles after a nine-hour trek. He got home Tuesday and paid $200 bill. Then Peter said Uber added $400, raising his total bill to $600. He's disputing the charge. Does he have a case? Yeah, Uber actually did refund it eventually after apparently he was on the line with them for hours as well trying to get them to refund it, and they finally uh, gave him the— uh, I actually blame the driver. I, I feel bad for the driver. I mean, yeah. The driver can't get any of the calls. And they don't make fault. a lot on these things. They, I mean, the tips is what they really uh, strive on. Yeah, people in Uber are just saying this is not worth it. They're starting to do the math. Next, Bucks re- uh, released uh, wide receiver and, uh, Antonio Brown pretty much cut him. Uh, the Bucks have determinated the contract, and Brown did receive treatment on his ankle because he claimed he was hurt. That's why he did not go back in the game. They said they knew nothing about his injury. He said he was cleared to play by a medical team prior to the start of the game. He, they attempted multiple times to put him back in the game, to schedule an evaluation after the game. He wasn't done to his own doctor. In the aftermath, Brown has released uh, has released a new hip-hop single and thanked the Buccaneers for the opportunity. He has since, was since seen at the Brooklyn Nets game on Monday, but didn't release a full statement on his issues. What a waste. Guy's got a chance to play into the Super Bowl with 33. I don't think he gets another shot. What a waste. It's a shame because Brady helped bring him in, and he was all, in a way throwing Brady under the bus the other day when he was taking a shot at Brady's uh, trainer as well. Next, uh, Novak Djokovic will wait in Australia. He's essentially in house arrest because he's not vaccinated, and that country is out of control. He wants to play in the Australian Open. Real Rafael Nadal expressed some sympathy for his rival, but said that ultimately uh, Djokovic has have to accept the consequences of his decision. Australia expressed outrage over news that Djokovic was about to be given a vaccination exemption. Let the guy play. I mean, this is what's what is going on in tennis. Who are you going to come in contact with? If you let him play, now you're going to upset the population because they will perceive it as him getting special treatment while they're still under lockdown. Move the Australian Open over to Greenland where it belongs. Next, Kareem Abdul-Jabbar's all-time scoring record. Ball could rake in $500,000. I'm pretty sure he needs the money. Uh, It was back in 1989 when he played his last game on April 23rd. Uh, So he's looking to sell that ball. Now, what would be one item if you could afford it Sports memorabilia you would want. I have no idea, but I will say this. I cannot believe he can't get a job anywhere. From the smallest school to the biggest college, the guy wanted to coach basketball. He's the all-time scoring leader. He could not get a job. To me, that made no sense. 
I think it's his reputation. Brian Kilmeade. Live from the Fox News Radio Studios in New York City, fresh off the set of Fox and Friends, it's America's receptive voice. Brian Kilmeade. Thanks so much for listening, everybody. It's the Brian Kilmeade Show coming to you live from a very snowy New York. Heard around the country, heard around the world. Of course, you can get the podcast everywhere you get podcasts, iTunes, uh, Spotify, uh, as well as, uh, well, wherever you go, get, just go to BrianKilmeadeShow.com. You can look it up. This hour, Carl Rover uh, always writes for the Wall Street Journal, always insightful columns. And he had a really good point when it came to January 6th. He just said, look, Republicans got to be practical about this. As much as it's not Pearl Harbor and, and it's not 9-11, if the Democrats raided the Capitol after Hillary Clinton lost to Donald Trump, Republicans would be outraged. I don't think they'd be overplaying their hand like these guys are. Uh, and Professor Wilford Riley's been summoned, and he has answered the call to take on the 1619 Project and everything else. Also put on the, the damage uh, that is happening to our kids uh, from 1st to 7th to 11th, even to college kids, by keeping them out of the classroom because of a virus now three years old. Let's get to the big three. Now with the stories you need to know, it's Brian's Big Three. Number three. Would these policies give criminals a green light? No. I mean, it, it, it just depends upon your definition of a criminal. Uh, and for all too long, we've kind of dealt with this othering of, you know, anyone we put in jail is a, a criminal. All right. Uh, that is the new uh, attorney general here, excuse me, district attorney here in Manhattan. Crime crisis. Murders hit records. New DAs are wrecking any chance of bringing law and order back to our city streets. Uh, the only hope we seem to have is a recall or another election. Number two. Certain dates echo throughout history. December 7th, 1941. September 11th, 2001. And January 6th, 2021. Predictable, making a horrible day in our history, January 6th. It's now morphed into an anti-Republican, anti-Trump festival of verbal barbs and hyperbolic speeches. As usual, the VP takes the cake, equating that day to Pearl Harbor. Number one. Six former members of Biden's Health Advisory Board have urged the administration in a series of op-eds to scrap their pandemic strategy and embrace this new normal of living with endemic COVID. The doctors calling out the administration's previous claims about making progress on the pandemic premature and also urging humility. Yeah, uh, that's what we're looking at. New approach. That's what medical experts are calling for that are on Joe Biden's side and were on his panel as he was becoming going from candidate to president. As we currently battle it out, school closures, vax mandates, we sit back flabbergasted as we try to get our head around the fact that we don't have enough tests and that we got to sit on long lines in 20-degree weather to get tests we don't even need, uh, many of which will be ineffective and inaccurate. Uh, let's bring in Professor Wilford Riley, an associate professor of political science for Kentucky State and author of the book Taboo, 10 Facts You Can't Talk About and Hate Crime Hoax. Uh, Riley, who's also got a great uh, podcast he's a part of called Cut the Bull. Professor, welcome back. Yeah, glad glad to be back on the show. First off, uh, as an educator, can you give me a holistic review of how much damage has been done to our kids of all ages over the last two years because they've been forced out of the classroom? Yeah, a ton. I mean, I, I teach in a university, but I've also done some tutoring work, coaching work, so on with younger kids and i would say if you're talking about these urban systems around here like louisville or cincinnati probably 40 percent of kids maybe a slight exaggeration not by much but have never logged into a virtual classroom 
So, I mean, there, there's an element of just game playing to this. If you're taking inner city or Appalachian or whatever kids and you're saying, well, we're going to be learning virtually. I mean, so you mean someone's going to take the laptop they can afford and open that at their kitchen table and sit there and look at it for eight hours a day? I mean, that that's essentially what's being pitched. And if you if you talk to teachers – what they say is, I mean, we're generally prohibited from looking into our students' homes, I mean, for obvious reasons. So we are essentially just assuming that everyone who's logged into this sort of classroom space is there, and we're just sort of talking. We're doing math problems on kind of a whiteboard behind me in, you know, our dining room at home. That's if it's what's called synchronous. You can also do asynchronous classes. I've honestly done this in college online where you just put the book online. So that that clearly is not the best way to teach, say, 11-year-old boys. And this has been going on for, as you said, two years now, moving into three. So that's a problem. Yeah, it's just so it's amazing how much damage being done. And I think parents and politicians realize it. And you don't even have Democrats saying, well, it's too dangerous. I mean, we gave them $1.4 trillion dollars. Billions of dollars to these school systems, and I'm amazed how many millions have gone to this CRT-style pro- programming and, and curriculum. Are you? Yeah. Yeah, I, I am in the, the quick segment. But first, one note on COVID. Obviously, COVID real, obviously COVID dangerous, but I think most ordinary middle-class Americans really misunderstand the risks of the pandemic. Um, there are many diseases. Flu in a typical bad year kills about 70,000 people. Now, COVID was about five times as dangerous as that. First year, we lost 350,000 Americans. Terrible tragedy. But the whole point of vaccination, therapeutics, so on, was that they cut that risk by about five. There's an 80% risk reduction from the vaccine. You can check that out pretty easily. I'm being cautious, actually. So what we have now is this entire block of people that are reacting to a threat that's about on par with flu, with existential panic. That's not an exaggeration. We're talking about Omicron now. It's a weaker variant. We're talking about post-vaccine. Every one of these urban teachers is double or triple vaccinated that I know. So we're continuing with this incredible fear even after the primary threat is gone. I understand why people do that, but it it does not make sense. And you're right, that kind of segue there. I mean, another issue with the schools is what they're teaching. So, I mean, obviously, when you come back into the classroom, the ideal is that you're going to learn mathematics, not be bombarded with a bunch of, you know, CRT, Howard Zinn, 1619, however you want to describe it, curricular content about how horrible America is. But the first problem is just overcoming that fear and getting these kids who are at very little risk from COVID, frankly. The average COVID death in year one was of an 81-year-old, but getting them back into the classroom. And from there, hopefully, we can we can improve what they're learning a little bit. I also would love to get the idea of the word grit. And you say to yourself, you know, whatever it takes, small or big, whether it's sports or life, you got to overcome it. You know, people are dealt uh, bad hands on a regular basis. If you haven't been dealt yet, you're about to. And this is something that's challenging everybody. So are you going to avoid it or try to clear the hurdle? And I just think the bad message for three years is run for your lives. And I just don't think that's why I want my third or seventh and my college kid. Uh, Also, I don't love being bullied into boosters. And that's what I'm looking at now with two of my uh, daughters, bullied into getting boosters or don't come back to school. Please tell me the science of some professor, no offense, that is going to tell me get a booster or I'm not going to feel safe. But I want to I pivot, if I can, to your, your uh, column that you just put out about the 1619 False History Project. You know, when I'm out with my book over the last four months, The President Freedom Fighter, I actually put in when I, I, to every one of the speeches the 1619 Project because online everybody's talking about it because it revolves around race 
Frederick Douglass, Abraham Lincoln, and the truth. Do you know that Nicole Hannah-Jones last week said that the Civil War started in 1865? That's just the latest example of her trying to she, her her book should be just uh, it should be anything but a handbook on America's past. Yeah, I mean, so I don't I don't normally throw darts directly at other people in academia, but yeah, that was amazing. I actually posted about this on Twitter and had some fun with it. But yeah, the the founder of the 1619 Project was very authoritative with some information about the Civil War and why it wasn't fought over slavery, but got the starting and ending dates of it wrong. Um, yeah, in in my opinion, that that does summarize how accurate a lot of this stuff is. Right now, we're in kind of this what a racial reckoning moment, at least in a lot of you know well-off white people's minds. So there's an incredible amount of prominence that's being given to the sort of academics. Some might even say quacks like Ibram Kendi, Robin D'Angelo is going down the line. You see books like How to Be Less Dumb About Race and Waking Up White go from kind of the psych shelf in the library to the bestseller list. My, my main hope would be that people pay as much attention to the many, many people that are responding from the right to the center. I mean, obviously the OG Tom soul for decades, um, you know, my podcast co-host Charles love race crazy. I mean, so we're not necessarily seeing a majority position, but we're seeing a very influential one right now. And just to make it clear, professor, I mean, for example, the other day on PBS, I was watching Martin Luther King give an interview in 1958 with a judge that is starting to push back, uh, against segregation and saying that, you know, blacks and whites can go to the same classroom and blacks and whites should be on the same buses, same water fountain, same locker rooms. And I'm listening to Martin Luther King talk and have to rationalize that thought. And I'm thinking to myself, wow, that's unbelievable that that was happening in the 1950s. I want to learn. I don't hate the country. I don't like where we were back then. And you should study that, not run from that. But you don't have to hate the country and say we're based on racism because we had segregation and failed reconstruction in many ways. I look at the progress and the, and the leaps and bounds we've made. I want you to hear Nicole Hannah-Jones talk about this, talk about CRT and the fact that we're debating this. And because we're debating that, this is what we fear. Well, I think we can look at the backlash to the 1619 Project, mm -hmm. uh, the, the backlash to the propaganda campaign against critical race theory, mm -hmm. and see that we are a country that has willfully willfully um, denied this history, that has not wanted to teach it and own up to the fact that slavery is one of the oldest institutions in America. And so much of the wealth of our country was built on enslavement, uh -huh. so much of our political, legal, cultural systems. But we have been in denial about that. And that's why you see such a strong reaction to this work. Do you agree with that? Uh, no, I don't agree with that. So I, I think that in one sentence, the, the classic really lie that's being used by the hard left here is that if you oppose teaching critical theory, which comes from a pretty straight-up Marxist perspective, you oppose teaching history. Um, that's absolutely nonsense. I mean, you talked about viewing one of the great Dr. King clips on major national TV. When I was in high school in Chicago in the 90s, we certainly learned that slavery was bad. Critical race theory is the specific argument that almost all of society is set up to oppress minorities. Racism is everywhere, every day. That's the goal. To quote uh, Rich Delgado, one of the founders of this, this kind of school of thought. So that is not true, but obviously we do need to learn about history. The thing is sort of how to do that. So in the National Review piece you mentioned, I, I give two pieces of context. The first is that we need to recognize that slavery 
and similar institutions existed almost everywhere in the world until Western society ended them in the 1800s. So that's that's necessary context in any lesson about slavery. You don't present America as the worst country in the world. We were actually one of the best, but we did have this disgusting institution in our time, just as every society has factory farms today, not a direct comparison, of course. But second, and I think this is more important, the good guys won, right? I mean, when you talk about all of these fights against prejudice in American history, I mean, in 1865, we conquered the South, in fact, pretty brutally, and won the Civil War. I mean, in 1954, we desegregated. That's what King was talking about. In 1964, we made racism illegal. That's the Civil Rights Act. You know, since 1967, we've had pro-minority affirmative action. So it's a little weird to pretend that it's endlessly, say, 1840. And it's so discouraging because uh, what is your uh, heritage? What's your, well, for me personally. Yes, you personally. I mean, I guess in order of oppression, um, I'm Irish, black, and Native American. Okay. <laughs> so I guess you've been asked that They've all had a tough time. Right. So, yeah, Irish and Italian. I, that's what I, my background. All right. So, I mean, I'm supposed to not only are kids being told that they're oppressors and victims, but you, you for example, uh, you're supposed to be angry at America. I'm supposed to apologize for the color of my skin for things I have never done that my parents were never a part of, that my grandparents weren't even in the country at the time. So do you understand the frustration for people who had nothing to do with this and have to fight off accusations they weren't even on the planet to be guilty of? Well, yeah, I mean, that, that's the classic. So, I mean, the classic immigrant response to being guilty has come in two parts. One, in 1865, you know, my ancestors were slaves in Russia or wherever. And two, when we got here, we weren't necessarily treated much better than you guys, at least if we're talking about in the, both groups in the North. And there's, there's a lot of legitimacy to that. So, again, this is kind of what I'm saying. Like, when we teach about history, we have to fairly teach about all of history. Yes. Um, some of my students were very surprised recently to learn that not everyone who was lynched in the historical past was black. So, I mean, we pulled up the lynching data. Tuskegee Institute has this for the teachers out there. It's a great, great source of information. But there are about, I don't have the exact number at my fingertips, about 5,000 lynchings. 3,000 of them, of course, involved African Americans. We were disproportionately represented. But 2,000 of them involved Caucasians, often Italians. So the, the group was just stunned by this. And they, they asked, well, was there a lot of bigotry against Italians and Irishmen? And so we, we actually ended up talking about that because the obvious answer is yes. So all of that has to be part of history, the, the horrible abuses of slaves, but also Chinese immigration, Irish immigration, what we were helping the English do in Ireland that led to Irish immigration. To shorten this into one sentence, if you read only one history book and it's written by Nicole Hannah-Jones, you'll wind up pretty woke. If you read 15, you'll probably wind up on the center or the right and you'll be deeply depressed about human beings, but you won't find America worse than most other places. So we need to include all of what happened through time in a good history class over those five or six or ten years the kids get. I hear you, and that's why you got to go to Kentucky State, right, and take one of your classes. Uh, (laughs) We welcome more students right now. (laughs) You got it, Uh, and hopefully are you guys in class? Yeah, I mean, so this is another thing, like, not to go on a rant, but in the heartland, the L states, I mean, 
Kentucky reopened. There was a lot of complaining about the what the light cloth mask world, but we reopened in May 2020. So it's kind of like dispatches from another world in Kentucky, Florida, <laughs> South Dakota, Utah. When you hear buddies on the coast say, like, we're thinking about relaxing our outdoor N95 policy or whatever. I mean, so, yeah, we, we've been back in, in the classroom for quite a while. The last two semesters I've taught were uh, in class at the least. Professor, I always love talking to you. Uh, thanks so much. I appreciate it. You too. Have a good one. All right. Uh, the Cut the Bull podcast is also uh, great. You should check that out, especially if you're going to be in the car for a while, uh, especially in Virginia, stuck on 95. Uh, and pick up the President Freedom Fighter. I think he agrees. Uh, we actually met at a book fair recently. Uh, I think you'll find the facts and arm yourself with the facts. And this way you can uh, survive some of these family get-together or friendly get-togethers. Back in a moment. Educating, entertaining, enlightening. You're with Brian Kilmeade. The fastest three hours in radio. You're with Brian Kilmeade. But is it time for a new approach is the question. I mean, this administration came in promising to get things on track. Here we are a year later. We're in the fourth wave. There aren't enough tests, nearly enough. I think it's important for us to, 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 to see in this moment, we're still, it is extremely frustrating. There's no question for all of us. But we also must acknowledge that there has been progress and that that is the trajectory. But there are still um, steps to go. We have still work to do. And in particular around the vaccines and, and masks, we want to make sure that everyone is taking advantage of all the tools that we do have available to us right now. Have you ever gotten smarter listening to Kamala Harris answer a question? That was Judy Woodruff. They're de- you know, they had it with the San Francisco Chronicle, the Los Angeles uh, Times, uh, Washington Post. And now she gave another interview the other day. And now they're with Judy Woodruff on PBS uh, on, Ju- on January 6th. And now she asked the question, listen, is it time to change your approach? Nothing's worth it. You haven't beat the pandemic. The numbers are greater. You've doubled your deaths during your reign or more than President Trump. And you and he had no vaccine and didn't know anything about this virus to start. Is it time for a new approach? No, she's got a generic answer. I mean, at this point, you got to win. You got to win in all these interviews. You have to say I have to roll in sound bites and say that is so smart. That is so insightful. That's what she needs. But she doesn't study, and her whole staff is quitting. The talk show that's getting you talking. You're with Brian Kilmeade. Certain dates echo throughout history. Dates that occupy not only a place on our calendars, but a place in our collective memory. December 7th, 1941. September 11th, 2001. And January 6th, 2021. Really? You really equate those? A guy with a real perspective on history, wrote best-selling history books in his own right, Wall Street Journal columnist, Fox News contributor. Carl Rove joins us now. Carl, would you have put that in your candidate speech? No. Uh, and, and once again, it shows the tendency of this White House and many leaders in the Democratic Party to overstate things. They, they could make a credible case about the problematic day of January 6, 2021. But no, they have to exaggerate it and, uh, and and equate it with an attack by a sovereign country on a military installation in Hawaii and, uh, and an attack by 21 terrorists on uh, the Pentagon, the World Trade Center, and an attempt to take out either the Capitol or the White House. Really, I mean, this, this, this was a day for solemn recognition of what that day, January 6, 2021, was, and instead— we had hyperventilation and exaggeration 
And as a result, it made the problem worse, not better. Listen, I, I wrote you. I, I thought you Colin was right on the money because I, I even I said at the time I was on the air uh, and people that listen to the show know it. There is no excuse for having that rally, for saying go march over there. In fact, I said to Pete Hegseth on the air as he was saying goodbye because he was doing the coverage on Fox and Friends. I said, Pete, where are they going? Go to the Capitol. I go, how could that be good? And I just said to myself, you know, what's going on? Now, the security was terrible. That is, a, that is something that needs to be probed. National Guard was ignored. That is something that needs to be probed. But when they went in with Trump flags and Confederate flags and go sat in Nancy Pelosi's desk to the point where Michael Waltz had to break off a leg of his chair to protect some older members of Congress, there was a problem with that. And we shouldn't pretend like yeah. there wasn't. We should not. Literally, look, there were there were thousands of people who went to the Capitol. They had a right to do that, peacefully protest. I, I, I participated in two inaugurals in 2001 and 2005 in which there were large numbers of protesters, many of them uh, suffering arthritic uh, hands so they could only raise one finger, um, who, who to protest the inauguration of George W. Bush in 2001 and 2005. But there was no right for hundreds, if not over a thousand people, to force their way into the Capitol, in the process assaulting 140 officers, of the breaking through barricades. I mean, people showed up that day. A, a group of them, you know, d- determined to violently assault the, the Capitol and break up the session of the Congress uh, on certification of the Electoral College. And they swept along hundreds more with them. And we cannot turn away from that. And uh, at my column on Thursday was aimed at my fellow Republicans to say. Let's go through an interesting exercise. If what would have happened, would you feel the same way? Would you call these people patriots and excuse them if in 2017 Democrats had stormed the Capitol and attempted to keep the Congress from receiving the Electoral College, claiming that there were razor-thin margins in Michigan and Wisconsin and Pennsylvania uh, that uh, Donald Trump had received and that that was the result of widespread electoral fraud, even though you'd not ever been able to prove it in a court of law. And then you had gotten the vice president, the then vice president, Joe Biden, to unilaterally declare that those three state delegations were out and, and Hillary Clinton's electors were in and she was president of the United States. Would we be similarly saying, oh, well, this was just tourists visiting the Capitol exercising their free amend- First Amendment rights? No, we wouldn't as Republicans. Yeah, I think and we'd be it, yeah. right to, to be angry. Right. And the other thing I would, I would say this. We remember that Joe Biden was vice president and had to keep gaveling down Democrats who kept yelling every time he tried to, to uh, official, uh, officially recognize the Electoral College result. So they were making a scene. And we also know yeah. in perspective, they spent three and a half years calling Donald Trump illegitimate and the Russians put him there. And we, yeah. they did the well, same thing to your guy, Bush 43. Yeah, no, no, look, look, look I, I love this. All these people sanctimonious on the Democratic side saying, how dare the Republicans ever question the election of, of Joe Biden? Well, uh, you know, look, frankly, the Republicans made a mistake in doing that, in my opinion. But so did the Democrats in 2005. I remember when when. When the Democrat House members gathered together the support to bring the resolution to, de- to not to accept certification of the floor, but they had to get a senator. And Senator Barbara Boxer of California, with whom I have a cordial relationship, joined them and allowed them to bring it to the floor. And what was their argument? The argument was the state of Ohio was stolen from the Democrats by a late night switch using computer technology to change the votes uh, in major counties across Ohio that I was the architect of it, and that there was a, uh, a, a whistleblower 
who was going to come forward and reveal the, the whole deal and that I had him assassinated. The, the poor guy died when he was flying his plane. He had a small plane that he flew from Washington back to northeast Ohio, and he, and, he, and, he, and he crash landed and died. But I had assassinated him. That was the theory. Now, who were those people? They included people like Maxine Waters, chairman of a major committee in the House, and the third-ranking Democrat in the, in the, in the Congress uh, and the House representative, James Clyburn of South Carolina. So, look, everybody, the last 20 years have been ugly. But, but the way to put this behind us is to let the process of our judicial system and of the Department of Justice uh, prosecutors go forward and be resolved. That's the way to put it behind us, not to simply get on our high horse like yesterday with Kamala Harris and say, well, this is equivalent to 9-11 and, 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 September, and December 7th, 1941. I mean, first of all, she needs a history lesson, but, uh, and, and we should be grateful that she didn't cackle when she said that. But that was not helpful to healing the country. It wasn't. Uh, Carl, I did not know that story, by the way. If I did know it, I forgot it. That, that, I'm not going to tell you what to write because a lot of times you do call me and ask me. But I would say that should be a column because people need well, to remember that in 2000. Well, look, it, it, you know, maybe, maybe it is or maybe it is not. But, but yesterday, each side had a responsibility. The side of the Republicans was to remember that this was done in the name of our party and our presidential candidate, and it was wrong. And that the people who violated the Capitol, who attempted to, to stop a constitutionally mandated joint session of the United States Congress, who tried to bring to a halt a proceeding that is determined by law and important to the peaceful transfer of power, that those were people doing it in our name and they need to be held responsible. No absolution for those people, no absolution for those who encouraged them and abetted it, but for the planners who, who said, let's make this a wild day, and bring about violence, there's no excuse for that. And they ought to be prosecuted. Right. Sure, they have the presumption of innocence, but they need to be prosecuted. And if they are found guilty, they need to suffer penalties. But the Democrats had a similar responsibility, which was do what you can to help the country heal and move beyond this moment. And they didn't do it. You mean, here's an example of what you're discussing. Cut 11. For the first time in our history, a president had not just lost an election, he tried to prevent the peaceful transfer of power as a violent mob breached the Capitol. They failed. And on this day of remembrance, we must make sure that such attack never, never happens again. He values power over principle because he sees his own interest as more important than his country's interest, than America's interest. And because his bruised ego matters more to him than our democracy or our Constitution. He's not just a former president. He's a defeated former president. Defeated by a margin of over 7 million of your votes. Don't you just feel the country coming together? Yeah. Look, if he wanted to rally the, the Democratic base, if he wanted to try and attempt to set up the 2022 midterm election as a choice between Joe Biden and Donald Trump, that's exactly what you would do. But that's not the responsibility, the first responsibility of the president. The first responsibility of the president is to be the president of the United States. And it was a moment to, in my opinion, to, to describe the events of that day, but never mention Donald Trump. It was a day to talk about what worked and how the system, how our, our, our put under enormous strain, our institution of government came through. People made the right decisions that did the right thing. 
But instead, the object was partisanship, not unity. The object was advance my cause in the midterms, not bring the country together, not put this moment behind us, but put it right in front of us and inflame everybody, particularly the Democrats, in order to get them out to vote. I, I, look, I, you know, I'm sure there were lots of meetings in the White House to discuss this, but I suspect most of them were, how can we take political advantage of this day? And that's what they did. They can't play the pandemic card. That was their card. Let's bring up the pandemic, anything, because we're so much more mature. We have such a, uh, so much more experience. We are going to end this virus. That was July. And now the numbers have look hideous. And a lot of his statements look erroneous. And now you have some of his uh, medical allies who were on his transition team who had to write a column about how we have to refocus and come up with a better plan when it comes to tackling COVID-19. And it begins with a new headline, not killing it, but living with it. So this is so he's got January 6th right now. That's his only ace. Yeah. Look, it was not just one column. It's three columns in the Journal of the American Medical Association. And, and look, I have a certain amount of, you know, uh, space between me and this issue because I, re- I was in the White House and sitting in briefings about uh, about uh, SARS, uh, a, a coronavirus in 2002 and three, and and those briefings were next to ter- the war on terror, the most hair raising briefings you could attend because of of all the things we didn't know. How easy would it be to for the virus to make a jump from animal to human? How uh, how e- what kind of ease and what means of of uh, of infection did it have? What how dangerous would it be and so forth? All these are imponderables. But again, this started last year. Remember Kamala Harris saying, "Well, if it's a if it's a if it's a vaccine developed under Donald Trump, maybe we ought to be wary of taking it." And all the misstatements out of Joe Biden on this thing. He politicized this. Now, granted, it's a political campaign, and he ought to, you know, he he gets to decide what he's going to talk about. But he made it about the guy in there is screwing it up, and I'll do better. And frankly, he hasn't done better. And it may be impossible for anybody to do better, given the fact that we're dealing with a virus. We're not dealing with, you know, a, a a problem like, you know, what do we do about inflation or what do we do about strengthening our military or what do we do about helping people in need? This is this is a, 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 something of a, an entirely different nature. But having having made that bed, he's now got to live in it. And I remember all of those Democrats who went out there and said, these deaths are on the hands of Donald J. Trump. And this year, more people will have died since January 20th or Jimmy, last year, more people died between January 20th and today than died while Donald Trump was in office. And and it, was it wrong for them to say that about, you know, this is your personal responsibility, Trump? Sure. Yeah, it was. We should not repeat the same, but they're going to have to live with the fact that a lot of Americans remember you, the Democrats, were blaming the Republican president for this, and, and the same standard ought to be applied to you. And the thing is, you got to at least ask the question. Do you believe that that same standard is at you? The numbers don't lie. You had a vaccine and a million-shot lead. And by July, you said it was done. And now we're looking at two variants in, and you didn't even have enough tests. You asked for the money. You got it and didn't fill out the invoice. So this is not tough stuff. Beating the pandemic is tough. But getting tests is not tough, especially when you already got the money from Congress. Yeah. Well, and remember, in September, they said we're going to order hundreds of millions of tests. And that turned out, you know, five months later, they hadn't ordered them. And I mean, you know, the, 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 who's in charge of this? Who, who is? 
and, and, if, and if it's Zeitz or whomever, why are we not hearing from them on a regular basis? Absolutely. And why is not the Congress of the United States calling them forward and saying, we want an update? Where are you? We've got some concerns. Let's raise these issues in a public hearing and get your answers. And, and hopefully that process will help make everything better. No, no, no. No, we, we have an, an administration that is running it from the White House. And the, the sec- you'll notice the Secretary of Health and Human Services, that guy Becerra, He's nowhere on this. I mean, when was the last time we saw that guy? Great point. I'm, I'm, I, I thought I saw him on the milk carton one this morning when I had some cereal. Well, he's I'm, got no experience guy, on it either. No, no. So good point. Uh, I only got um, uh, 90 seconds left. Where are we at now with this move on Martin Luther King Day by Majority Leader Senator Schumer to come forward with blowing up the filibuster or carving it out in order to get 50 votes to federalize elections? What do your sources say, if any, about the chances of Manchin and Cinema caving on this? I don't know. Maybe Angus King is also agreeing uh, with uh, Joe Manchin. But in Axios today, it looks like his so-called friends, Senator Warner and Angus King, are pushing Manchin to give in to the carve-out. Yeah, I, I don't look. If, if they carve it out, uh, they will regret the day they did it, and 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 the sixty vote rule will be changed and the, uh, forever, and the Senate will become just like the House, and we will begin to see dramatic ping pong back and forth. When Democrats are in control, they do big things that moving the country to the left, and when Republicans get in, they they undo those things and move the country to the right. This is not helpful for the country. My view is it ain't going to happen. I think Mansion and Cinema are going to hang tough. The 60-vote rule is going to be required. That is a useful device to make us try and arrive at durable changes in our country because the, and, and durable because both parties, elements of both parties agree on those big changes. That, that's what has made America a, a great country and has made our politics durable. And to destroy that would, I think, be very problematic. I would think so, too. And it's very short-sighted, to say the least. I mean, look what's going to happen in 2022. And if you look at that, there's about nine strong Republican candidates, and I see maybe two or three Democrats. So I think they should, should some sober-minded person, not emotional, should say to themselves, do we really want this fight? Call Rove, can't yeah. thank you enough. And again, it was an important column. I know you probably got some blowback on it, but it, I think it really no, it gave her perspective. You no, didn't? No, Good. Two, two emails and... Uh, one of them, one of them was persuaded by the by the by the uh, videos I sent her of the violence, and uh, but no, uh, it, it was and, and who cares? It was the right thing to say. It was the right day to say it. I stand by every word. As I do. Uh, thank you, Carl. Appreciate it. Thanks, you, buddy. You got it. Uh, back in a moment. Both sides, all opinions. It's Brian Kilmeade. He's so busy, he'll make your head spin. It's Brian Kilmeade. Does calling him out divide more than it heals? You've talked so much about healing, sir, healing this country. Well, look, the way you have to heal, you have to recognize the extent of the wound. You can't pretend. This is serious stuff. And a lot of people, understandably, want to go, look, I, I, that, that was an exception. I, you know, I just assume not face it. you got to face it. That's what great nations do. They face the truth. Deal with it and move on. Hmm. So that was a question he got after a speech, and that was not a Fox reporter who asked the question, because you give a speech that sounds like a stump speech, something that you might give if you're running for re-election. Obviously, I, th- I, I believe two things. Number one, they cannot believe Trump is still around. They can't believe uh, they conspired uh, to get him kicked off 
uh, social media, all social media outlets. They can't believe that um, uh, the man who had the rally, who didn't show up at the inauguration, uh, who left and we haven't heard much from, is now the still the most powerful Republican in the country and is poised to run for election against that very guy in 2024. And he's very uh, and he should be very good uh, running against Joe Biden, who now had to perform for the last year and has done awful things uh, from Afghanistan to handling this pandemic. And now with just 200,000 jobs added when he was supposed to have 400,000 this week, with more people quitting jobs uh, in November than any time in American history, 4.2 million. Uh, that is something that makes you attack like that in an inappropriate time. I'll be on Gutfeld tonight and over the weekend. Uh, you'll be seeing me all around, too. I'm going to be on Fox and Friends tomorrow morning and uh, might even be on with Howie Kurtz on Sunday. So see you soon. From the Fox News Podcasts Network. I'm Janice Dean, Fox News Senior Meteorologist. Be sure to subscribe to the Janice Dean Podcast at foxnewspodcast.com or wherever you listen to your podcasts. And don't forget to spread the sunshine. Listen to the show ad-free on Fox News Podcast Plus, on Apple Podcasts, Amazon Music with your Prime membership, or subscribe wherever you get your podcasts.